0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands on his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails... And place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Is it not absolutely wonderful to finally be to this time of the year? Right? Uh, If you were with us last week, then you may have had the chance uh, to join some of the kiddos out in the yard uh, during the Easter egg hunt. Uh, which was out just out here on the lawn, uh, and if so, then you probably walked among and underneath all of the blossoms and felt the uh, water-soaked earth underneath the grass, or even got a, a fleeting moment of sunshine, uh, which, you know, around these parts, you've got you to take while you have them. It's the, it's the time of year where the tyranny of winter's gloom begins to wane to the joyful celebration of spring. Unless, you know, you have allergies, at which point God be with you during this trying and unfortunate time. (laughs) But for the church, this, of course, is not just the nice time of the year when all the foliage becomes beautiful again. It's the season of resurrection. It is when we watch creation itself put on the great performance of dead things springing into glorious and breathtaking life. Dormant gardens almost suddenly burst into color and fragrance and beauty. For the church, this is the season that the long, wintry fast was always leading up to. The denials in Lent pointed forward to to the feast which we now celebrate, not just on one Sunday, but for 50 wonderful, rejoicing days where we imbibe and enjoy the good things which we had previously set aside. Like creation, the church practices the performance of withering, so to speak, of being found limited, which of course we never truly were. We were never truly prisoners, uh, you know, held captive in a fast. But we put on this practice to focus ourselves on what was to come and is here now. Because during those solemn 40 days, the word Alleluia was nowhere on our lips. And then, with the acclamation of Christ's resurrection, we proclaim in a shout of joy, Alleluia! Christ is risen! Alleluia, indeed. Alleluia. Our fast is broken in feasting and rejoicing, just as the flowers of the gardens put the nutrients of the soil to good use, so as to blossom and spread their seeds, their life, out into the world. And we see this joy reflected in our evening readings tonight. Uh, the, the disciples are freed from prison, and they go right back to proclaiming the good news. Because what else is there to do, right? St. John the Divine is, is just trying to enjoy a, a nice Sunday church service uh, when he cannot help but be captivated by the awe-inspiring righteousness of the risen Lord. We find, then, that in all of creation, there is this, this desire, this coming forth of life that the church has been attesting to. And then we read about Thomas. Thomas's story is right here in the middle of this joyous celebration in the first week since our Paschal proclamation between shouts of joy and raised glasses of wine, and if you're like me, probably about seven too many lamb meatballs. But in the garden bloom of the Resurrection, Thomas has allergies. If you're like me, the story of of Easter is so familiar that when you read and hear it, it almost plays out in your head like a painting, right? Everything is static. The moments are bathed in glorious light. Everyone is just kind of waiting to take their, their, their turn, right? So when when Jesus shows up and, and you know, says to, to Thomas, hey, I'm here, we almost expect Thomas to go, oh, lovely, wonderful, sounds great. But of course, these are real moments lived by real people, and real people are not just static and always pious, right? They're not, they're not always uh, anxious and ready to receive what God is doing more often than not, they're kind of messy and frustrating and stubborn. When I have heard Thomas say my whole life, you know, unless I see in his hands those marks where the nails were and place my finger into those marks and place my hand into his side, I'm not gonna believe. I, I've more or less always read this as Thomas kind of defining the parameters of the evidence he's willing to accept, right? That as long as these proofs are provided, He's more than happy to convert from disbelief to belief. But the more I read this, this, this story, the more I wonder if Thomas's tone is that, not that of just kind of a laudable skeptic. Uh, I actually wonder if perhaps he's a, he's a bit more confrontational. If we put ourselves into Thomas's shoes, then we have to recognize that he's dealing with the fallout of the of the one person in whom he has put all of his trust and his hope and his faith, being dragged out and crucified shamefully and spectacularly in front of the entire world, that the one person he believed in has suffered and was mocked and conceivably proved to be none of the things that he had claimed to be, that the man who had healed the wounds and the hearts of the people all across the country could not spare himself from the lacerations that he himself suffered. Like absolutely everyone before him, Jesus was thrown into a tomb, and as, to- as far as Thomas was concerned, that was the end of that. And now, in the middle of that suffering, in that grieving, in that hardship, all of Thomas's buddies, as though to add insult to injury, are insisting... That Jesus isn't dead, actually. No, no, he's alive. And for Thomas, this has got to be just like it's too—it's too good to be true, right? Of course, of course, Jesus came back while I wasn't around. Sure, sure, you you saw him, and I just happened to not be there, right? For Thomas, this this is not uh, this is not some some hopeful news that he's just kind of skeptical about. This is, this is news that is fundamentally offensive. It is unkind as far as he's concerned. I can't help but wonder if Thomas's tone is not that of a shrugging skeptic, but of the devastated, caustic cynic. When Thomas says, I need to see those scars and touch his wounds or I won't believe, I'm not sure he's saying, give me some proof. I think what he's trying to say is, I'll believe I'm looking at Jesus when I'm prodding and poking his rotting corpse. That, that you know how I know I'm looking at our Christ when I've got my hand shoved inside the wound that he couldn't avoid. I think for so very many people, Easter is not at all a season of celebration and joy, especially not in our city. Uh, I think, by and large, uh, what Easter is to most people here, is a really odd Sunday in the middle of the year when a bunch of restaurants that don't have brunch menus suddenly have brunch menus for a day. Uh, And that's just about it for most people. But for some, it's a painful and bitter reminder that the kind of hope other people get to enjoy is vacant from their life. It's a time when the blossoms of the garden are not a beautiful invitation to, to consider the wonderful works of God. They're a source of, of sniffles and, and scratchy eyes. I think Thomas is probably a cynic worthy of the city of Portland. For him, the joy that the rest of the Apostle, the joy of the rest of the apostles was an affront to his own sorrow. So much so that he's unwilling to believe them. He can't believe the good news that they're offering. It's just simply easier to mourn by thinking that Jesus is a decaying mass of flesh rotting away somewhere in the earth than it is to accept the absurdity of Jesus's resurrection, as, as, it, as it would seem to Thomas. Which is why I actually find verse 26 to be the most, abs- perhaps the most absurd moment in this entire story. I've missed it pretty much every time I've read it uh, until basically preparing for, for tonight. Uh, but it's this, it's this odd little detail that just speaks volumes. The, the, the verse reads, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Did you hear that? Eight days later. Can you begin to imagine what those eight days must have been like? Thomas has told his friends that he does not believe that Jesus is resurrected. He's not going to believe that Jesus is resurrected. Thomas is more like to say, Show me a corpse, and I'll show you the light of the world. And yet, after eight days, they're all still together. That's more than a week. That's, a, that's so much time. It's an unbearable amount of time. Can you imagine having to suffer that amount of time? Because for both, uh, both sides of, of this are subject to a pretty unpleasant undertaking. Uh, if you're like me, you've been kind of on either side of these, of these camps. I know I've been uh, in point, at points in my life where I'm just absolutely miserable and surrounded by people who have an obnoxious optimism and positivity that makes you want to rip your hair out. Right? But I've also had times where I am, uh, you know, I'm kind of at the heights of my joy and, and have got someone here who is just bound and determined to be in a bad mood and bring me down. Whichever side you're on, the couple of hours that you're in that circumstance are, in, it's an impossible situation to suffer and endure. And you're just thankful when those hours are over. This was eight days of that. I cannot imagine what that had to have been like for the apostles trying to celebrate the joy of the risen Lord with Thomas pulling them down in his bitterness and Thomas trying to somehow process his grief and sorrow with the burden of their obnoxious joy at every turn and it begs the question why would anyone subject themselves to this like genuinely we know that Thomas was there eight days later what could possibly be the reason for that? I think there's actually in this story, in, in just that little, that little sentence, quite a, quite a tremendous amount of courage on display, both for the believing apostles and for Thomas. Because the ones who saw Jesus, who had all of their hopes fulfilled, who had all of the gloom of their suffering and sorrows undone by his revelation, it would be so incredibly easy to just show Thomas the door, right? To begin to think to themselves, you know, it may have been for a reason that Jesus showed up when Thomas wasn't here. You know, maybe, maybe Thomas isn't, isn't part of what, what's supposed to come next. In, in fact, maybe it's the case that keeping Thomas around is going to sort of interfere with whatever is supposed to come next, Right? This is perhaps a very natural thought, especially as the days wear on and Thomas becomes an even greater insufferable source of tragedy in, in the midst of what is, you're trying to celebrate. You know, it, it, I can't imagine that no one entertained the idea of saying to Thomas, listen, you're either on board with what we're talking about or you're not. But if you're not, there's no seat for you at this table. You gotta, you gotta buy in or you're out the door but they don't say that. Thomas is still with them after eight days. And for Thomas, if, if you think about it from his perspective, he's got to be thinking, have I fallen in with the wrong group of people here? I mean, our leader got himself crucified. These guys, if they keep going on about what they're going on about, they're gonna get themselves crucified. I'm probably gonna get murdered in the whole, in all of this. This is insane. I, I should just cut my losses. And, and head out before something worse happens to me, right? Not, not, even, not even to begin to consider that I'm trying to grieve and they won't let me. That it would be easy enough for him to say, I don't want a seat at this table. These aren't my people. I don't want to have anything to do with this. But neither of them gave in to that temptation. That very natural, very obvious opportunity to give in and part ways. The believing apostles endured their acerbic brother in spite of his bitterness. They make a point of leaving space for him at their table. And Thomas, against his better judgment, goes ahead and sticks around, even though there's seemingly no reason for him to stay at that table, to continue to meet and break bread and bicker with these morons, he's, he seems to be committed to some hope, right? He, he has some hope that whatever joy it is they know maybe awaits him as well. He has no reason at all to believe that it ever will. In fact, he probably has no belief that it ever will. He doesn't believe what they're saying. I'm not sure that he wants to believe what they're saying. I'm not sure that he can believe what they're saying. But either way, he's doing the remarkable thing of continuing to be with them, to meet with them, to spend time with them. And here's why that's so important. Because each of them did the the more difficult thing the believing in doubting or it, sorry the believing and loving their doubting brother, and the bitter the bitter one enduring their joy, Thomas also got to have his entire life upended by Christ because eight days after he insulted and mocked them and made it clear he would never think of Jesus as anything but a butchered failure, Jesus walks right up to Thomas and says. Super sorry, I'm not a corpse anymore, but, you know, if it'll help, you're welcome to still poke and prod at my wounds. Right? The faithfulness of the apostles and the diligence of Thomas meant that he bore witness to Jesus, the risen Jesus, the resurrected Christ whose life completely and utterly pacifies the staying power of death that Thomas had believed in. And Thomas's response immediately, my Lord, and my God. About 30 seconds earlier, I'm not even sure Thomas believed that there was a God. And now he's the very first person in all of scriptures, other than Jesus himself, to affirm the divinity of Jesus, to look at Jesus and say, you are God. That Thomas, the caustic, bitter, depressed disciple, who was afflicted, by the joy of his brother, looks at the body that he was so, so certain was rancid and festering just a minute before and proclaims to everyone in that room and to the church even to this day that God is right here in front of me and no one is going to convince me otherwise. And this is the apostle who is the one who is going to go to the furthest reaches of the world, who is going to travel the furthest from his home to proclaim until his dying breath that Jesus is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tomb bestowing life. In our pews, I imagine we probably have some Peters and some Jameses and some Johns, some Matthews. People so filled with the joy and beauty of Easter You don't know what to do with yourself but drink in the fragrant air in the blossoming garden. And we've also probably got some Thomases. So burned and bitter, maybe indifferent, maybe hopeless, maybe envious of other people's hope. I would like to ask us to do the perhaps impossible work of modeling the disciples. No matter where you fall on that continuum, but that is to do the, the, the difficult, suffering work of continuing to meet together and bearing the burden that is each other. To suffer each other. Because to the joyous, the Thomases here need you. They need your joy to be so open that it fixes a plate for them and enjoys the meal together for however long it takes. Because it's that kind of faithfulness that leads to hopes being fulfilled. And to the Thomases here, I would implore you to keep meeting, to come to the table, to come and take your seat among those whose joy you don't understand or don't care for, or a joy that itself seems like a burden on you because of how much more real it makes your sorrow feel. Because whether it takes eight days, or eight years, or 80 years, As surely as Christ was present to Thomas, he is going to meet with us at that altar every week that the church gathers. And whether you are to the point of being able to accept that immediately or not, I would advise you to consider the challenge that St. Augustine has leveraged to each of us. That whether or not you understand it, choose to believe it, and then you'll understand it. And know that even when you're feeling that, that, it, that it, it, nothing is happening, that you're not meeting with Jesus, even when it feels that way, know that in this discipline, the monumental act of believing is a blessing. Jesus says, blessed are those who, even if they have lived a life, have def- deferred hopes in the midst of those who are who are at the heights of their joy went ahead and believed anyway. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.